Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's sermon podcast. The message of this sermon is super short. It's all grace. Where does that grace come from, and how should we respond to it? Those are the questions that we need to work with. You're listening to It's All Grace by guest minister, Rev. David Bast. The Lord be with you. Friends, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. We've had a very full service uh, with a lot of beauty in it and um, a demonstration of grace. Uh, but it's okay. I'm used to radio where we have to fit things into a definite time slot. <laughs> Except, hey, this ain't radio. <laughs> All right. Uh, you may be somewhat surprised by the scripture lesson that I've chosen for this morning. Normally, you hear it on Christmas Eve, and that's probably about it, once every year. Um, but I've been thinking quite a bit in recent weeks about grace. And I wanted to preach about grace. And there's no better verse, I think, to do that uh, on than uh, this verse from uh, John 1, from the famous prologue of the Gospel of John. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So grace upon grace, it's all grace. Before I read uh, these familiar words, join me in prayer. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Holy Spirit, illumine our minds, we pray, that seeing we may see and hearing we may understand your word written. And open our hearts that we may at the same time receive the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, 
This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. So first, let me just touch on, uh, by way of reminder, the things that John tells us about Jesus, about the person of Jesus. And of course, first and foremost, as we all know, he tells us that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, God incarnate. So uh, as uh, J.I. Packer remarked somewhere, here we have two mysteries for the price of one. The mystery of the Trinity, that the one God eternally exists in more than one person, and the mystery of the incarnation, that the man Jesus Christ, while being fully and completely human, was at the same time fully and completely divine. Two natures united in one person. Mysteries. John also tells us that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. If you want to know who God is most profoundly and deeply, look at Jesus. So he says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And made him known not just with his words and miracles and teaching, but supremely, Jesus has made God known through his actions. The word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father. And you might ask, what did John have in mind when he said that? What, what was that moment of glory where, where John was dazzled by the glory of Jesus? Maybe it was the incarnation, perhaps the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' face shone. Maybe it was the post-resurrection Jesus. Maybe all of the above. But supremely in the fourth gospel, Jesus' glory refers to the cross. So Jesus will say at the beginning of chapter 12, Now my hour has come. Father, glorify your name. And a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. And the onlookers said, hmm, was that thunder? And Jesus went on to say, now is the judgment of this world, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all to myself. Jesus' exaltation takes place on the cross. That is the supreme moment of glory. When we see who God is, fundamentally is gracious love. That's the nature of God. You won't get that from nature, from the creation. You'll get his grandeur, his wisdom, his power. 
But his, own, his love is only ultimately revealed on the cross. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So yes, he's the ultimate revelation of the character of God, the very nature of God. He is the Father's beloved Son. John also tells us that. No one has ever seen God, he says. I I love the way that 18th verse is translated um, in a new version by a classic scholar named Sarah Rudin, who's uh, published an edition, a very interesting translation of the Gospels. Uh, She's a classicist, a translator of uh, ancient Greek and Latin literature. And she renders verse 18 this way, no one has ever seen God, but the only born God who is in the Father's lap, he has made the Father understandable. Most modern translations say who's at the Father's side, kind of rendering it typically in modern language that makes it understandable but robs it of its deeper meaning. Because what we used to say, who is in the Father's bosom, right? He's in the Father's bosom. Jesus the Son occupies the place with the Father that John the beloved disciple occupied at the Last Supper with Jesus. The place of deepest intimacy. The relationship between the Father and the Son is not some mathematical formula. It's not some distant sort of power uh, bonding. It is the deepest possible love. The Father loves the Son. And so uh, this prologue ends with a wonderful symmetry where it began. The Word was with God. The Son is in the Father's bosom, sitting in the Father's lap. We recently uh, visited Europe, had a wonderful time. I love going in churches, and any old, ancient Catholic church that you visit in Europe is bound to have an image of the Virgin Mary holding Jesus on her lap. In fact, you don't have to go to Europe to see that. You don't even have to go to a Catholic church. I noticed this morning, it's right there. Right here in this bastion of Reformed faith. There's the virgin with the child on her lap. She's dressed, draped in her traditional blue. He has a halo and his arms, his little arms are open wide to embrace the world. That's a beautiful thing. But even more beautiful is what John says. The son is sitting on the father's lap. In fact, theologians would tell us that even when he became incarnate, there was a sense in which he never left the Father's lap. It's getting deep there, but he is the beloved one. And finally, John tells us here that Jesus is the overflowing fountain of grace. Twice, John says, he's full of grace, full of grace and truth, mind you, because the two always need to be held together. They're often not. Very often, people who are gracious don't care so much about the truth. People who are truthful don't care a lot. They're often not very gracious. Jesus is both. Nothing sentimental about his grace. Nothing harsh or hard or judgmental about his truth. Full of grace and truth. 
Jesus is the overflowing source. The word John uses is, is a wonderful word. It's pleroma. And it's the word Paul uses in Colossians 1 to describe Jesus as being full of the Godhead. Uh, so just as Jesus is full of God, so Jesus is full of grace. And uh, that's crucial, isn't it, for us? Because now John goes on to tell us some things about ourselves. What does he say? First of all, we all have received grace. From his fullness, we have all received. That we there means that John is speaking not simply for himself and his fellow apostles. He's speaking in the voice of the church. We have received grace. In fact, it's a, a, a pretty good shorthand description of who's a Christian. <laughs> a Christian is some, simply someone who's recognized that they're the recipient of grace, of God's free and gratuitous favor of the love of God freely poured out, potentially on everyone. Uh, it's undeserved, right? We know that. We didn't deserve this. We're not somehow better than other people, and that's why God singled us out. We above all should know that, should understand it. But if you don't, just look at the Bible. Look at the cast of characters. Abraham was a Mesopotamian idol, idol worshiper. Isaac cared more about his dinner than he did his own children. Jacob, a liar, a cheat, a coward. Moses, a murderer. David, a murderer and an adulterer. Solomon, his sexual excesses made David look like a monk. <laughs> and that's just the Old Testament. Peter denied the Lord. Paul was a blasphemer and an, uh, a persecutor of the church. In fact, Paul points to himself uh, as exhibit A of the undeserving. So writing to Timothy, Paul says this, uh, the saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. <laughs> I'm the great example of the undeserving. Not only undeserving, unmerited, unearned, nothing that we do uh, <laughs> makes it happen. There's a wonderful uh, passage from one of Frederick Buechner's book, books, Shame and Grace, where he puts it this way, a crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. There is nothing you have to do there is nothing you have to do. There is nothing you have to do. There's only one catch, like any other gift. The gift of grace can be yours only if you reach out and take it. 
Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. Unmerited, unearned favor, a gift, free, with no strings attached. This is why John contrasts grace with law. For the law was given through Moses, he says, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And it's true. Uh, There's a grace aspect to the law, too. That's a subject for another time. We get that as Reformed folk who know our catechism. There's a positive use for the law. But the law as a means of justification, that's right out. That's opposed to grace. It doesn't work because the law says do and grace says done. The law says you have to and grace says just receive. Just accept. Just say yes. So we're saved by grace. We have re- you can't be a Christian without grace unless you're the recipient of grace. But we're sustained by grace as well. It's not just grace at the beginning. Oh, you foolish Galatians who want to start with grace and then lapse back into law as if our relationship with God depended on our performance. No, it's grace, grace upon grace, grace every day. Grace in the morning to sustain us through whatever challenges or trials may confront us in that day. Grace in the evening to cover our mistakes and our offenses and our blunders and our our sins. Grace all the way, all the time. My grace is sufficient for you, whatever may befall. That thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, my grace is sufficient. Uh, Our youngest daughter, and here our kids thought they had finally reached the stage when I wouldn't embarrass them in sermons anymore, but here it is. And and this is going to be forever on the internet, but she did some graduate study in France, and when she came home, she uh, shyly admitted that she had gotten a tattoo. I was not pleased. Uh, What's with these tattoos everywhere? Really? Okay, I'm an old fogey, but... I was mollified a bit when she showed it to me. It was very small. It was very neat. But what really uh, did the trick, it was in French. She had studied in France. Uh, was what it said. It said, tout est grâce. Tout est grâce. It's all grace. As I say, I was mollified. Somewhat. (laughs) But friends, I mean, that's all I want to say to you this morning. It's all grace. All of it. Even the bad stuff is going to turn out to be grace. What else does Romans 8.28 mean? If not that, even the bad stuff will prove to be grace in the end. So can I just suggest a couple of things? Think of it as a conclusion. Think of it as an application. Think of it how you will. The first is, shouldn't we be humble? What do you have 
that you did not receive. And if you received it as a gift, why do you boast? <laughs> so says the scriptures. I mean, seriously, what do you have that hasn't been given to you as a gift? And if so, why would we want to look down on others, maybe who haven't received it? Why? Listen, the characteristic temptation for us, and by us I mean respectable, religious, Christian, church-going people, our characteristic temptation is Phariseeism. To stand in this beautiful temple and if not say, at least thank God, I thank thee that I am not as other men. Like those people I passed on the way to church this morning who are out jogging or walking the dog instead of worshiping. Like those secular, progressive, atheist, agnostic nuns. Like those right-wing nut jobs. God, I thank thee I'm not like others. You remember the parable of the sower? Uh, Jesus told this story to, to illustrate the mystery of faith and unbelief. So the seed is scattered throughout the world. It goes out and some of it falls on the hard soil and doesn't get a response. Some of it falls and it's choked out, the cares and riches of the world. Some of it falls on good soil and it springs up and bears fruit. And his disciples came to Jesus afterwards and they said, uh, why are you so enigmatic? Why are you talking in riddles all the time? And Jesus replied to them, to you it has been given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Have you given thanks recently for your faith? The fact that you actually do believe? That's a gift. So why would we be tempted to be dismissive of those who don't have the gift? It's a mystery. Humility. Here's, a, here's the other thing. How about graciousness? as the recipients of grace, ought we not to be gracious? You know, I mean, look at the times in which we live. Grace is in short supply. I don't want to be that guy, you know? The angry guy who retweets all the time and is always stirring the pot. I don't want to be him. I want to be gracious. The, the supreme example of ungraciousness is Another Jesus parable is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember him, the guy who said, grace for me, but law for thee? Let's not do that. Let us become ourselves, little channels through which the overflowing grace of Jesus flows out into a dry and thirsty world. Amen? So if you want law, you can have it. But if you want grace, come to Jesus. He's got plenty. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We praise and bless you, O oh God, for your amazing grace.
It's a sweet sound. And we pray that it would ever more characteristic our life, be a characteristic of our lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.